Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word, the word that you have promised never returns unto you void. And as you have demonstrated through even the ministry of Advent Hope and Audioverse, souls are being changed because the word accomplishes what you please. And so this morning, as we spend some moments in your word, we claim that promise, that you will work what you please in our hearts. And may we not just have a surface understanding of some words on a page, but may we come to a relationship with that living word, Jesus Christ. And may his spirit be here to lead and guide us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, and while you're turning there, here's the stage, the context. Jacob had been in exile from his father's home now for many years, but God had now called him to come home to the land that has been promised to him and his posterity. But he's coming back a very different man than when he left. He's returning now heavy laden with goods with wives and children and servants and flocks. He comes back a wealthy man, but he comes back unarmed for any hostile encounter. You remember the story, right? Messengers go on ahead. They come back. Esau is coming. Esau is coming with 400 men of war. He doesn't send back a message, no peaceful greeting, nothing. And Jacob realizes he's in trouble. And so as any sensible father would do, he tries to protect the innocent. He divides his his group into two. He sends one on ahead, another a different direction. So hopefully, you know, if one gets captured, the other one can escape. And he does what he can. But he himself remains behind because there's something left for himself to do. And this is where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 32 will begin in verse 23. Genesis 32, verse 23, And he, Jacob, took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Verse 24, And Jacob was left alone. What does that mean? Jacob was left alone. In the literal sense, we can imagine in our mind's eye, the sun has set. The desert breeze whips up some of the dust clouds as You see Jacob by himself in the middle of the wilderness. He's alone. But there, I believe, is more to it than that. Jacob was really alone because, look, he has no home. The land that God has promised to him is before him. Esau is in the way. He just left under, let's just say, not very good terms with his father-in-law Laban. He couldn't turn back. His mother, who loved him so much, was of no help to him now. What could he do? Where could he go? To whom could he turn? All of the wealth that he has, what can that do to save him now? Even his beloved Rachel, for whom he worked for so long, what could she do to help him? In fact, he's endangering her life. Jacob had always had a plan to get himself out of a tight spot. What plans could he concoct now? But more than any of this, I think in one special sense, Jacob was alone. 
in more than any other sense, and that is he recognized that he alone was responsible for the circumstances that he was in. He alone was responsible for the lives now of innocent women and children. It was his fault. He knew it. He couldn't deny it. And how I, I just, I imagine that he's just reliving that whole experience with Esau, that pot of lentils, the, the deception of Isaac, and the conniving with his mother, and then the rapid haste that he had to flee his home in. All of these things present themselves to his mind. But I think there was something else that Jacob remembered. And that was a special night, not unlike the one that he's experiencing now, alone out in the wilderness, with nothing to sleep on except a stone as a pillow. You remember that story? He had a dream. What did he see in the dream? He saw the ladder. And not only did he see the ladder, he heard the voice of God. He heard the voice speak the words of promise and acceptance to him in that moment when he thought all was lost. So I imagine that this night, Jacob was looking for that same experience. Haven't you ever had that experience? You're going through a difficult time and you reflect, oh, if only I could rekindle that that connection I had with God back then, when I had this experience. And you go back to that. You remember that and you long for that. And I believe this is where Jacob was this night. He's looking for that angel ladder. He's listening for the voice of God. The reassurance that he is accepted in the beloved. Because look at him. He is at the point where he's got nowhere else to go. I mean, he couldn't turn to the left or the right. He couldn't go forward. He couldn't go back. There's nothing he could do. There's no one to help him. He was alone. And usually, uh, this is the part of the story, when we read in the Bible, this is the part of the story when God's people are, are in straight situations where they have nowhere left to turn. This is where we expect some divine intervention, right? That's how the story is supposed to go. The children of Israel come down to the the shores of the Red Sea, mountains on either side, Pharaoh's army behind them, nothing they can do. So what what happens? God performs a miracle of deliverance. God injects himself into the situation. He intervenes and he delivers his people. I mean, over and over and over and over, this is how the story plays out. We see uh, the disciples, right? They're they're on the storm-tossed sea. They're rowing. They're sinking. There's no hope. Jesus says, peace be still. He intervenes and he delivers his people. We could go through story after story after story. This is what always happens. God seems to allow circumstances to come to a head to a point where there's no other way of escape except through him. And I praise the Lord for that. And we know that God does work. He does step into the story with Jacob, but maybe not in the way that we are thinking. Let's continue reading. We're in verse 24, Genesis 32. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. 
And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So we had already discussed the spiritual, the emotional angst that Jacob was under. And I can imagine him prostrate on the desert floor. He's weeping out his prayer, a supplication to the Lord, and a strong hand grabs him and pitches him. (laughs) Body slams him. And all of a sudden, there's a physical manifestation of the emotional struggle that's been going on. And Jacob, of course, we know he thinks that this is one of Esau's men coming to seek his life. He's struggling for all it's worth. So he's praying. He's wrestling in his mind. He's wrestling in his soul. He's wrestling in body now. He's struggling for his life. And we're told that they wrestle from midnight until the breaking of the day. In that part of the world, the sun rises approximately 6 in the morning. Wrestling, not just like play wrestling, you know what I'm saying. This is like life and death wrestling for six hours, approximately, give or take. Ellen White describes it as an almost supernatural effort from Jacob's part. Just a couple weeks ago, I was visiting my brother-in-law, and they have a little boy, two years old. I took him to the playground. I was tired after 20 minutes. (laughs) Five or six hours of wrestling a grown man as for your life. Jacob was exhausted at the end of this ordeal. And as the sun is about to rise, he is fatigued. He's been praying. He's emotionally spent. He's physically tired. The adrenaline is just wearing off. I mean, this guy is going, this guy's a wreck. And so this angel, the sun is rising. He touches him on his leg, and in an instant, he's crippled. So imagine with me what Jacob was like. Jacob now is laying on the desert sand, sweat pouring down his face. The dust of the desert floor matted in his hair, on his face. He's quivering out of exhaustion. Tears of the sharp pain is squeezing drops of tears out of the corners of his eyes. And he's just collapsed on the floor in a heap. And he realizes something. As the sun, maybe I just imagine with my sanctified imagination, the first rays of the sun shines on this divine messenger and he realizes in that instance, I've been wrestling with God. This wasn't one of Esau's men. This is a divine messenger. But more than that, it dawns on him that the man who just crippled me, the man who appeared to have been seeking my life, was the God that I've been praying to for help. To put it in other words, it appeared to Jacob in that moment of his utter extremity that God had turned against him. His only source of support and help was now kicking him in the dust, crippling him when he needed God the most. Jacob, in that moment when all of the confusion was swirling, the emotions were spent, the body was broken, he realizes at the depths of the bottom of the barrel, he realizes, wait a minute, 
what hope is there left for me? If even God himself has turned against me. Do you recognize that that was the test that Jacob underwent? And that is not how the story is supposed to go. God is supposed to deliver his people. He's long-suffering towards us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life and come to repentance. But here we see God behaving very strangely. But of course, we know the end of the story. Let's read it now. Verse 26. And he, meaning the angel, who we know to be Christ himself, he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except you bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and has prevailed. So, all of this happens probably in a span of a couple seconds. Jacob is crippled. He gets knocked down to the dust. This angel messenger sees the sun rising and he's about to leave. In the confusion of that moment, when all hope seems to be lost, the internal evidence of his guilty heart and the external evidence of God himself standing above him as his punisher and destroyer, all the evidence point to one thing, and that is, Jacob, you are a lost man. There's nothing left for you to do. You're, it's hopeless. It's over. But in that instant, there's no time to spend an hour in thoughtful contemplation. There's no time to go review our, our journals of going through difficult times with God. There's no time to form a committee to discuss and take a vote. There was no time for that. There was only time for instinct to act. And in that moment, what does Jacob do? He reaches out, and I believe he reached out not just with his physical arm, but with the arm of faith. And he clings to that angel and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And of course, we know this was not some presumptuous grasp and some presumptuous plea like, oh, yes, I'm full of sin, but God, I know you. You've you got to forgive me because that's just the way you are. No, no, no. This was a man who recognized that he deserved to die. He deserved the punishment coming his way. He recognized his guilt. But despite all of the appearances, he also claimed the mercies of God for a sinner such as himself. And this reminds me of a quote that nothing is apparently more helpless, but, apparent, but really more invincible than the soul who feels his nothingness and relies wholly upon the merits of God. That was where Jacob was brought to. When he was completely stripped of all self-sufficiency, when he lay prostrate and broken, mentally broken, physically broken, spiritually broken at the feet of Jesus, but despite all of that, yet he still chose to cling to Jesus, it was then that he became Israel. It was then that he prevailed against God and man. And this is the faith that is demonstrated through the arm of faith reaching out 
in his moment of extremity. If I can put it this way, Jacob recognized that it was not necessary that he live, but it was necessary that he has Jesus. It didn't matter if he was going to be killed that night. It didn't matter if he was going to be killed by Esau. The only thing that mattered now was that Jesus Christ would still accept him. And so, what's the big deal about this story? What's so special about Jacob? Why spend all this time, blow by blow, going through all of these details? Turn your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 5. The Bible says, For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, verse 7, For that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of what? Time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. According to Jeremiah, the experience of Jacob was not a one-off experience. It will happen again. And Jeremiah uses a very poignant word picture to try to make a point. Elsewhere in the Bible, Daniel chapter 12, in fact, it says that when Michael shall stand up, there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's called the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah chooses to call it the time of Jacob's trouble, but he goes farther to say there is none like it. And to try to make the point of how serious this time is going to be, he's grasping for the most intense pain that he can imagine. And he takes it one step further. He says, imagine women in childbirth. Imagine when that happens to men. That's how bad it's going to be. He's trying to just make a mental picture that this time is so serious, so painful, so out of the ordinary that it's like if men were walking around with cramps and labor pains. That's how bad it's going to be. That's what Jeremiah is trying to say. So, okay, I I got you, but that does beg a question. How can that be? How is it possible for the time of Jacob's trouble, which we understand that is going to be at the end of time, right before the second coming, after the close of probation, after all of the final events, the mark of the beast, the Sunday law, all of those things, the time of no buying or selling, that's all over, and then there's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble. How can that be more severe than the Dark Ages? How can that be more severe than some of what happened to the, the people in Hebrews 11? So they were sawn asunder, some of them. Cast into a cauldron of boiling oil? And crucified? I mean, come on. Can it really get any worse than that? The the Inquisition and all of those terrible stories? How can it be more severe? I believe the answer is given to us 
through the pen of inspiration. This paragraph is found in Signs of the Times, November 27, 1879, paragraph 11. Ellen White writes this of the time of Jacob's trouble. She writes, Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. So we're talking about the same thing here. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them as to Jacob in his distress. Listen carefully. It appears to them as to Jacob in his distress that God himself has become an avenging enemy. Ever in the past, when God's people were brought through persecutory times, God was there as an ever-present help in time of trouble. But somehow, and I don't know how this will fully play out the specifics, but somehow the test in the time of Jacob's trouble at the end of time will be like what Jacob experienced. It will appear to be that God himself has turned against his people, that he himself has become an avenging enemy. If that is the test, then that means the time of Jacob's trouble is not predominantly a physical affair. Even though there may be, just like Jacob had to wrestle, there probably will be weary, hunger, cold, delay, pain, sure. But that's not the core of the test. Neither is it an intellectual test. Is it going to be you know, the seal of God or is it going to be the mark of the beast? Am I going to live in the country so that I can have food to eat when I can't buy or sell? You know, those are all important things to understand, but that, those tests at that point will be over. The test is primarily a test of our muscle memory. What do I mean by that? The muscle of the arm of faith. Have you exercise that faith muscle to the point that it is instinctive for you to trust the Lord. Even when it looks like He isn't listening to you, when He's turned against you. Isn't that the lesson we just learned from Jacob? So would it not be a shame for us to understand the 2300 days and the sanctuary message and we know the ins and outs of women's ordination and all of these things? But when the moment comes, when the fire is around us and it looks like God has left us, we find that we have not the root in the Word and also that experience with Christ that can lead us through that kind of an experience. In the very same paragraph that I read earlier, Signs of the Times, November 27, 1879, paragraph 11, She continues, she says, It is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of His people to look out and away from self to one who can bring help and salvation, that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering trust. Here, faith is proved. So why does God permit His people to go through this? Why is that necessary? It seems so cruel. It seems so inhumane. Why is it necessary? Well, according to this passage, there is something to be proven. God, in the great controversy, has to demonstrate something 
through his people going through this experience? Will we instinctively cling to Jesus when it looks like his arm is raised to strike us? Why is it necessary? Why does faith have to be proved? Think with me for a moment. Back several thousand years ago, to that night in Gethsemane. We discussed this a little bit last night, but let's revisit that story, that scene. Jesus Christ was alone. More alone than even Jacob was. Treading the winepress of the sins of the world alone. His disciples slept while he sweated great drops of blood. The Father set the cup of his wrath before him, and Jesus said, If it be possible, let this pass from me. He couldn't go back. He couldn't go forward. There was nowhere to turn. Just like Jacob, he had to make that decision himself. Will he go through with this? And on the cross, when he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God and draining it to his dregs, the darkness enveloped him. He could not see through the portals of the tomb. And as he, and as he hung between heaven and earth, it looked as though God had become his avenging enemy. Hope did not present itself to him as a conqueror. But nevertheless, through that fog, through that darkness, through that hopelessness, what were the, some of the final words of Christ? He extends that arm of faith through that thick darkness and he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And this, remember, this is while he was saying moments before, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that not the experience Jacob went through? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But nevertheless, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That right there we see is the faith of Jesus. And so when God has a people at the end of time who goes through the time of Jacob's trouble, who goes through the same experience and has the same response, an instinctive faith that clings despite the odds, just like Jacob, just like Christ, then God will proclaim, behold, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Here, faith is proved. And what does that prove? That proves that righteousness truly is only by faith. It proves that by faith it is possible to live righteously even when God appears to no longer sustain His people. What does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the completeness of the plan of redemption. It shows that God was not lying when He says, the just shall live by faith. The just not only can live by faith, The just do live by faith, and it is all the just needs to live, and that is faith. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about the future. So what does that mean for us today? Right? We saw Jacob in the past. We saw Christ in the past. 
We know there's going to be a time of Jacob's trouble in the future. So what does that mean for us today? In the book Our High Calling, page 321, paragraph 2, it says this. Let none be discouraged in view of the severe trials to be met in the time of Jacob's trouble, which is yet before them. Speaking to us today. They are to work earnestly, anxiously, not for that time, but for today. What we want is to have a knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ now. And a personal experience now. In these precious closing hours of probation, we have a deep and living experience to gain. We shall thus form characters that will ensure our deliverance in the time of trouble. God in His mercy has revealed to us through His Word and through the Spirit of prophecy what the final exam is going to be. And to prepare for the final exam, we don't focus on how hard that's going to be. We focus on the little lessons that God teaches us today. The little opportunities, the little quizzes, if you will, that He places before us now. And I might venture to say that the preparation for that time is not the sophisticated, complicated, intellectual understandings that perhaps we as Adventists overemphasize. And I'm a Bible teacher, so I'm not denigrating the importance of Bible study. But perhaps what's more needful for us is to learn to live by faith. To really know what that means to, when, when we say we have a personal experience with our Lord. When temptations come, to truly know and have experience with what it means to gain victory through the power of Jesus. When difficulties come, when doubts arise, when things don't make sense, to be able to still live in accordance to the Word of God despite outward appearances, that's the experience we need. To have the, the understanding of who Jesus is, the nature of who He is, the character of the Lord, to view Him and to experience Him. Far too often, I believe, we are fair-weather Christians. We can talk the talk, we can walk the walk when it's not raining, when it's not storming, when our life is going well. But half-baked, halfway Christians aren't going to make it in the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the lesson I'm, I'm learning here. And relating somewhat to what we discussed last night, I believe often our Christianity is based on this mentality of what do I get out of it? What's the prize? What's the reward? If I give you my filthy rags, what are you going to give me? If I burn my CD collection, what do I get? If I go to church on Saturday, what's the reward? But when it comes down to it, when it looks like God himself is turning against us, there's no reward that's going to be worth it in that day. Our experience is going to have to be grounded in something far deeper and far more solid than that. So what is the need for us today? Maybe the preparation is not all that complicated. Do you know Jesus? Truly? Genuinely, 
know Him? How often do you spend time with Him? When the difficulties come, what is your response to Him? When things don't make sense, do we automatically question and doubt and complain? As that is, I believe, our natural inclination. When there are issues in our lives that God reveals to us that cuts across our nature, do we fight? Do we argue? Do we resist? Maybe it's in these, the most basic elements of our Christian experience. Maybe this is where we develop that muscle memory in that arm of faith. Maybe it's in those little things from day to day that God trains us to meet the greater tasks ahead. What profiteth a man that he should gain the whole world but to lose his soul? I think it's wise for us to really take a closer look. Why do I follow Jesus? Is it really for the prize? Am I doing it to gain something? Or am I doing it to become like him? Because only one of those paths leads to victory in the time of Jacob's trouble. And so this morning, the appeal is very simple. Will you come to know Jesus as Jacob came to know him? Do you want to have that experience today for the Lord to move you from the baby steps to running that race with patience where we can literally say, Lord, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it appears as though you have raised your arm to strike us down, we will still trust in you. That's where I want to be. That's not where I am now. If that's your desire, I invite you just to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we have spent a few moments thinking about the experience of Jacob, the experience of Christ, and the time that is coming ahead, Lord, truly may we realize that the preparation is far more than just information, far more than just knowledge, far more than just a set of behaviors, but it is truly and genuinely a deep living experience with you. And Lord, what does that truly mean? We don't know. We need you to lead us. We invite you into our hearts and into our lives, into our experience to demonstrate to us what it means to to know Jesus as it is our privilege to know him. Teach us to exercise that, that faith, to stretch it out, to practice extending the arm of faith even when it's difficult to, when there's resistance to. So that when the moment comes, when the test comes, that we might instinctively still rely on you no matter what. You have heard our prayer. You see the desires of our hearts. May you lead us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.